Uh, today's sermon comes from Judges chapter 7, verse 1 to 7. And let's all read it together on the count of three. Uh, one, two, three. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You guys may be seated. So we are at the part of the book of Judges, which is my favorite part of the book, okay? And as, as I prepare for the message, this message really speaks personally to me. And as I consider the situation um, that we face in our church, I do believe that this message also speaks very personally to many different members of our church. As you have might been aware, uh, we experienced some of our members in our church experienced loss, and some of us are sick, some of us are struggling, and for the last couple of weeks, it's just been bombarded with many bad news. In fact, before I preached uh, an hour ago, I, already, I received another bad news, and yet at the same time, I believe in the passage that we're about to look at together, that it is actually when we're weak that we find strength in God. Now... Imagine if you are the owner of a traveling worldwide company and you are hiring someone to be the new COO. Okay, what would you do? I'm sure you will look to hire the most qualified person you can find. Am I right? I mean, you look at their resume, their past experiences, their qualification, and then you would choose the most suitable candidate to take the company forward. You will not choose someone who just graduated from high school who has no experience and past achievement. I think it's fair to say that we always prefer someone with good resume over someone with no experience. Am I right? And perhaps that's why we have trouble understanding the Bible. Because the Bible is not as obsessed with resume as we are. In fact, it goes the other way. The Bible seems to go against this tendency because you and I see in the book of Judges that God oftentimes called the unqualified people and assigned them an impossible task. I mean, if we look at the people that got chosen in the Bible, let me tell you something about them. Most of them will not be hired in our church. For example, 
King David. All right, awesome. I mean, we know that King David wrote most of the psalm, right? He's a great worship leader. But imagine if he has a work in, I mean, an interview with me. I'm like, David, oh my gosh, you are such a great worship leader. You have such a beautiful voice and you wrote wonderful song. Why don't you tell me about your past? Oh, I slept with a woman who's not my wife and kill her husband to cover her up. I'd be like, cross, next, next, out. Think about Apostle Paul. Like we know, Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. But I am sure we will not hire him to be our teaching pastor. Right? So I'll be like, Paul, oh, I can see that you're a very gifted teacher. You have a brilliant mind and your writing are second to none. And I will ask this question. Is there anything I need to know about your history? Oh, yeah. I put some of your church members to jail and kill a few dozen of them. I'll be like, thank you. Next, please. Right? They will not be qualified to be ministered in our church. The same is true for Gideon. If we want someone to lead a nation into war, we will not choose a weak, cowardly man like Gideon. But yet, he is the man that God chose to save Israel. So last week, we looked at the call of Gideon, how God came to this cowardly man and called him what? A mighty man of valor. And God, what, what God was doing was he was speaking prophetically. God did not speak to Gideon based on what he was, but based on what God was going to turn him into. In other words, God is not called, I mean, Gideon is not called because he qualified. He's made qualified because of God's call. See, God, I mean, Gideon is not your conventional hero. He's a weak hero. But as we're about to see in this story, Gideon's weakness is not a handicap. It is an advantage. Because through it, God wants to tell us that His power is most fully displayed when we are weak. So now, before the big battle begins, God wants to teach Gideon one important lesson, okay? So if I can sum up the whole sermon in one sentence, it will be this. We are at our most powerful in God when we are at our weakest in our own strength. Can we say that together in count of three? One, two, three. We are at our most powerful in God when we are at our weakest in our own strength. And this is a lesson that Israel needs to relearn again and again. And this is a lesson that we need to continue to learn again and again today. So look at the story. My favorite story in the book of Judges. I have three points for my sermon. The necessity of weakness, the encouragement in weakness, the victory from weakness. Let's look at the first one. The necessity of weakness. First one, two, three. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was not of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling... Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So by this time, Gideon's army and the Midian's army, they are camped close to one another. See, the battle is just around the corner, 
And this is war one-on-one that everybody know. Okay, it is this. The more soldiers you have in your army, the better chance of winning. You with me? Everybody knows that. Okay? And by this time, Gideon, he's ready. Because remember what happened last time? After the fleece sign, Gideon is confident. God is with me. God has given the Midianites into my hand. And now from where he stands, he can see the vast numbers of Midianites' army. And we find out later that the Midianites have at least, listen, 135,000 soldiers, at least, in their army. And Gideon has 32,000, okay? Let's do some math here, okay? What's the ratio? Let's do the ratio. The ratio is 1 to 4 in the Midianite favor, okay? So that is not a good ratio. And Gideon will need every single man to, to, to fight this war. But then surprisingly, God says to Gideon, Gideon, you have too many men in your army. Now, Gideon's probably thinking, excuse me? God, did I hear you right? I think you might have said the wrong word. I think what you meant to say is, I have too few men. I need more men, not fewer men. Because right now, there are four Midianites for every one Israelites. The odds of winning the battle are not good. But in the eyes of God, the ratio of one to four are still too many. So God then commands Gideon, Gideon, why don't you tell people who are fearful and trembling to go home? And this makes logical sense, right? Because if you know anything about war, fear is contagious. It is a good psychological screening device because you do not want fearful soldiers because it can destroy the army morale. Okay, I can imagine. So, so when God says to Gideon, Gideon, tell the fearful man to go home. Gideon's like, okay, that sounds good. I'm leaving. Goodbye, God. Because we know that he's a coward. But God's like, no, not you, Gideon. You stay. And maybe Gideon only expects a few hundred men to go home. But to his surprise, 22,000 men returns home and only 10,000 remain. So let's do the math. That means 70% of Gideon's army walk away. Now, I try to imagine if I come to church and one Sunday, 70% of our church attendants suddenly walk out of the church. Let me tell you, I will probably walk out as well. Okay, bye church. Hi, Edric. You're in charge. That's not an encouraging sight. Because I'm sure by this time, Gideon is devastated by what he sees because the ratio of soldiers now, watch it, 1 to 13.5. That means for Israel to win the war, each man needs to kill at least 13 to 14 Midianites. And you're like, that is very unlikely. And God is not finished. Look at verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I said to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I said to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who left, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who left, 
I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provision in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So after Gideon is left with 10,000 soldiers, God said, Gideo, you still have too many soldiers. And I'm pretty sure at this point, Gideon's like, come on, God, you got to be kidding, right? Because this does not make sense at all. In what war manual book is 10,000 soldiers too many against 135,000? Now, can you see how frustrating it is? From God's perspective, Gideon has too many men. God wants less. From Gideon's perspective, he has too few men. He needs more men. But Gideon obeys God. So he takes men to the water for drinking tests that God has set. So here's what happened. So some of the men drinks water kneeling and some lapping like a dog. And God says, send the people who kneel home and those who lap like a dog stay. Now, when I was in Sunday school, uh, my teacher told me why lappers were better than kneelers, okay? So they said that the lappers, they were more alert and watchful, while the kneelers, they were careless and only thought of their thirst. So those who left were the best of the best, the elites, the 300 who were ready to fight the battle no matter what. And the moral of the story was, kid, do not be like those who went home. You want to be those who get chosen to fight. Be brave. Make sure you become one of them. Don't be a coward. Be the 300. Well, I'm grateful for my Sunday school teachers, but I think they were wrong. Now, let me tell you why lapping soldiers is better than kneeling soldiers. You ready? They are better because God is a dog person. Okay, that's not the point. The answer is, listen, that is not the point. See, the moment we ask why lapping is the sign of a better soldier, we are missing the point. Because what God is trying to do is not to select the best kind of soldiers. Oh, no, no, no. See, God is not trying to create a group elite soldier, soldiers, well-trained soldiers to fight the war. He's not after a particular kind of soldier. He's after particular number of soldiers. So Gideon tells the kneeling soldier, go home. And they ask, why? Because you're not drinking right. Are you sure? Yes, go home. And the drinking test is simply God's way of reducing Gideon's army. See, God intentionally takes away everything that Gideon could possibly trust except God. And until the odds are impossible for Israel to win the battle on their own, the number is too many for God. And out of 22,000 men, only 300 remain. So now that means Gideon has less than 1% of the army he had previously. Less than 1%. And the ratio is now, correct me if I'm wrong, is 1 to 450. That means for Israel to win the battle, each man needs to kill 450 Midianites. That's not unlikely. You know what that is? Impossible. But that's the point. 
because the 300 men are not the epitome of Israel's strength. They are the sign of Israel's weakness. So here's the question that we must ask them. Why? Why did God do it? Why reduce the number from 32,000 to 300? Praise God. We don't have to guess why because God make it very clear in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people which you are too many for me to give the Binias into their hand. Why? Lest Israel boast over me saying, My own hand has saved me. So the reason why God reduced the number of Gideon's army to 300, because God wants Gideon and all Israel to know for sure who gets the glory from this war. See, God wants them to look at the war, look, at, look back at the war and think, there was no way we could have won the war. It was impossible for us to win. There were too few of us and too many of them. And the only reason, the only reason we won is because God is with us. This victory belongs to God and all the glory says. And our only part is to trust God and obey God. And here's the problem. God knows exactly Israel's propensity to boast in their own strength. Israel will either praise God for this victory or they will boast in themselves. This is how Dale Ralph Davis put it. Because of the tendency of God's people to glorify their own efforts, to trust in their proven methods, to credit their own contribution, to think well of their cleverness, Yahweh frequently insists that His people be reduced to utter helplessness so that they must recognize that their deliverance can be only chalked up to Yahweh's power and mercy. If God does not reduce the number of men, here's what happened. God might get a mention in the footnote, but He will not be the headline news. However, when 300 men war against 135,000 and win, God will be the headline news of every news outlet. So that is why God intentionally reduced the number of men until it is impossible for Israel to boast in themselves. Now, does not this speak to all of us? I mean, can you see this tendency, this evil tendency in you to steal God's praise? And isn't that why a lot, why a lot of time God has to make, it, make us realize how inadequate we are before He trusts us with His work? Because God knows exactly that you and I, we are very prone to rely on ourselves. See, we are very prone to rely on our strength and steal the praise that belongs to God. See, if we can be honest, this is what I know about your nature. Your nature and my nature is if there's even a tiniest opportunity for us to boast on our own strength, we will. And the moment we think we deserve credit, we take away the glory from God that He alone deserves. And that is why God cannot trust us with His work until we realize how inadequate we are to do it. Because it is God's agenda to make us depend on Him for all things. And He is always at work to achieve this objective. So let me take it one step further. Get this. God is so determined in His preference for weakness 
that He often must weaken us first when He wants to use us. Now, let me be honest with you. This is the hardest lesson I must learn as a pastor and a preacher. Because there's something in me that continues to believe that I am actually good enough for God to use me. There's something in me that speaks in me that believes that I'm actually a quite good preacher. That I have what it takes for God to use me. That God is lucky to have me on His side. Well, of course, I know better than to voice that out with my words. But I hear that whisper in my heart again and again. I'm good enough. I can do it. I'm capable. And before God can use me, He must destroy that delusional sense of strength that I have. So I remember, you guys, most, most of you guys know my story. I remember when I graduated from Bible college in 2009, you know, I was ready, pretty much. I was ready to change the world, okay? I was that optimistic, right? I was ready to change the world. I was ready to transform the church. I was ready to do mighty works of God. But here's my problem. I think I'm capable. So I rely on my own strength. Everything was centered on me and what I can do. So I wanted to do God's work, but at the same time, I wanted the praise and glory for myself. You know know what I'm talking about? And that is why before I was able to do anything, suddenly I was diagnosed with leukemia. And at first, it did not make any sense. Why did God allow this to happen to me? I mean, why did God make me extremely weak on the hospital bed when I want to do God's work? But that's where I finally understood for the first time how prideful I was. It was then I understood that my strength is not an advantage. Because when I think I'm strong, I'm actually weak. But when I am weak, then I'm strong. Because it's only then I learned to embrace God's strength for me. So let me give you a warning that echoes throughout the Bible. Okay, this is a tough warning. And it is this. Our strength is more dangerous than our weakness because our strength often keeps us from relying on God's strength. Let me repeat that one more time. Our strength is more dangerous than our weakness because our strength often keeps us from relying on God's strength. Isn't that true? When you think you can, you don't seek God. You don't seek God's grace because you don't think you need it. And maybe, maybe the reason why we are, we are where we are right now is because God is trying to convince us of the absolute necessity of weakness. God intentionally reduced the size of our army because He wants us to know how weak we are. Because then and only then we learn to lean on God's strength. So the first thing that we learn from this text is this, that God does not simply work in spite of our weakness, or no, God works in and through our weakness. So when we hear that terrible diagnosis from our doctor, when we suddenly find ourselves out of job, when our marriage in the first of collapse, when suddenly we receive that phone call that we lost the person we love, when suddenly something bad happened to our children and we do not know what to do with it, 
when those moments come, those are the moments where our army being reduced by God. And these are moments of decision. Here's the decision you have to make. Will you clench your face toward God or will you lean into God like never before? That's the first one, the necessity of weakness. But the second part, this is a very interesting part, we will see the encouragement in weakness. Verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Now, let's put ourselves in Gideon's shoe for a bit. You started with how many soldiers? 32,000. And now you only have 300. And the numbers of the enemy doesn't change. 135,000. How would you feel? You will be discouraged, right? You'll be afraid. And God knows exactly how Gideon feels. He's very sensitive to Gideon's condition. So God said to Gideon, Gideon, Go and fight the Midianites because I've given them into your hand. But if you are afraid, go down to their camp first and I will encourage you by what you will hear. And Gideon probably like, afraid? Me? Okay, I'm going. Pura, come with me. Because we know that Gideon is not William Wallace. He does not have a brave heart. Okay, different generation. Gideon is not a man of steel. Okay, you guys get that, right? He's not a superman. Gideon is a man with full of fear just like you and me. So that's why when God says, if you're afraid, go down. Gideon like, I'm going down. But what I want us to see is the kindness of God toward Gideon. God knows Gideon is afraid without Gideon having to say it. And God goes the extra mile to give Gideon the assurance he needs. The fleece test, once is not enough, twice is not enough. Gideon needs to be reminded again and again that God is with him. And God continued to be patient with Gideon. And look at what happened next, verse 12 to 15. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamt a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread stumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and his interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Okay? And this part meant to be funny, okay? So when Gideon sneaked into the Midian's camp, Midian's camp, when he gets there, one of the Midianite soldiers had a dream. And he is telling his comrade about the dream. 
and Gideon happens to be there by chance. And it is a weird dream. Okay, here's the dream. He dreamt that a loaf of bread tumbled into the camp and take down the tent. Okay, let me put it in our today context. It's like having a dream that a Big Mac crosses your house. Does anyone ever had that dream? Okay, if you do, we need to cast the demon of Mechus out of you, okay? That's what happened. So it doesn't make any sense. How on earth can a Big Mac crush a house? What is more surprising is how his comrade interprets the dream. He said, that Big Mac must be Gideon. God has given the Midianite into his hand. I mean, what are the chances? A weird dream? An ironic interpretation? And Gideon happened to be in the right place at the right time to hear it. So now Gideon is hearing the same thing that God has spoken to him, but from the mouth of the enemy. The timing and the event are too good to be true. Do you know what we call this? Not a coincidence. This is providence. God has sovereignly arranged scenario to encourage Gideon in his weakness. And so when Gideon hears the dream and the invitation, he worshiped God. And at that moment, Gideon is transformed. From coward person, he become a very courageous person because now he go back to his man and say, Arise, time to fight because God has given the Midianites into your hand. The fearful Gideon is transformed into courageous Gideon because now he knows for sure God is with him. And God has given the enemy into his hand. And don't miss this. Who takes the initiative to encourage Gideon? God is the one who takes the initiative to encourage Gideon because God knows exactly what Gideon needs to hear before the battle. And let that be encouragement to you and me, to you and me. Listen, God knows our fear. God knows how scared we can be. God knows how afraid we can be. It is human to be afraid. The question that we must ask is, what do we do when we are afraid? And my hope is that we do what David did in times of fear. Psalm 56 verse 3. This is what David say. When I am afraid, what did he do? I put my trust in you. I love this verse because this verse is telling me, listen, God is not offended when we are afraid. He's not angry when we are fearful. He's not harsh with us when we tremble. He does not ridicule us for our fear. He does not mock us because we are fragile. But what He wants us to do when we are afraid is to come to Him and bring our fear to Him. See, sometimes, I think you and I, we have the wrong mindset of God. We think that God is only interested in a strong Christian, in the courageous Christian, in the confident Christian, in the talented one, in the sure one. But let me tell you, friend, that is not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is the God who takes fearful person, strengthen their hand by grace, and make them able to do His work. In other words, God does not need strong, capable people. He wants fearful people who put their trust in Him. 
And God goes the extra mile to encourage His people because He loved them. Parents, you understand this, right? As a good parent, you remind your children all the time, Kiro, I love you, and I'm here for you no matter what. But do you know when you remind them the most? When they are going through difficult times. You don't say to your children, well, I told you once already when you were born that I love you. That's more than enough. You should already know that I love you. No, right? Because if we love someone, here's what we do. We are willing to assure them of our love. Especially in difficult times. And that is what God does with us in time of fear. Alistair Beck writes beautifully. He says this, We can cast all our cares upon our Heavenly Father. We can lay all of our burdens and all of our fearfulness down at His feet. And I love the last statement. It is okay to come to Him and say, we don't know what to do. I love the last part. It is okay to come to God and say, Lord, I do not know what to do. Because that is precisely what God wants us to do. Think about it. God intentionally removed every temptation for Gideon to put his confidence in his army. God reduced the army of 32,000 to 300. God intentionally made him weak. Why? So that he might learn to trust in God's strength. And I believe that's what God is doing with you, with you and me all the time. God has to remove so many good things in our life that has become too important for us so that we might learn to trust God and His strength. But here's what's interesting part though. Do you know how God oftentimes encourages us? This is very counterintuitive, but it's true. Do you know how God encourages us? By commanding us to obey Him. See, Gideon is afraid. And when God is trying to encourage Gideon, God tells him to what? Go sneak into the Midianist camp and you will find your encouragement there. Now, if I was Gideon, I'd be like, hold on a second. God, I'm afraid. And I know you know that I'm afraid. How is it that you are asking me to go into that camp? That's like the last thing I want to do. Can we just do another fleece task? And God like, no, Giro. It is when you obey me and go down to their camp that you will find the encouragement that you need. And this is how God works most of the time. This is how God encourages us. How? God, we feel a little, we take a step. God, we feel a little more, we take another step. And it is as we take this little step of faith that we begin to see that God's faithfulness is leading us and guiding us. With another word, God often gives us what we need as we do what He has told us to do. Our encouragement is found in our obedience to God's Word. And the opposite is also true. If we never step out in faith, if we never take risk to obey God, we will never find the assurance of God's presence with us. 
See, it is when we step out in faith in obedience to God that we find the assurance that God is with us. You with me so far? Which led me to my third point, the victory from weakness. Verse 16 to 18. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. <laughs> this part is really strange. Because now, Gideon has this new confidence, like, okay, God is with me. So he gathered his 300 people and started to share his strategy. And this strategy is extremely weird. Now, I'm not a military man, but I love to watch and read many military manga. Yet I have never read something as strange as we just read, except for the Battle of Jericho. So Gideon is about to face 135,000 men with 300 men. So he's at big disadvantage, normally speaking. And then he comes up with this very strange strategy. Like, imagine the conversation he has with his 300 men. All right, guys. We are going to attack the Midianist camp. I know the odds are impossible, but God has given them into our hand. We can do this. And I have come up with a better plan. And the soldier's like, that's great, Gideon. Tell us about it. What should we do? Should we aim straight for the commanders and kill them first? I think that's our best bet with the numbers we have. And Gideon's like, no. I know that's how you see done in movies, but that is too mainstream. We are not going to do it. And the soldier's like, wow. Just as expected of you. You must have come up with a great genius strategy that we cannot think about. Why don't you tell us about it? What do we need? C4, smoke granite, arrow, spears. Well, actually, guys, <clears throat> we're going to need trumpets, torches, and empty jars. Trumpet, torches, and empty jars. No. Wait, what? Can you repeat that? Here's what we're going to do. We are going to divide our army into three groups. And each group will carry trumpet, torches, and empty jars. And we're going to hide outside their camp. And when I blow my trumpet, all of you must blow your trumpet as well. And then we're going to smash the empty jar and shout out loud, for the Lord and for Gideon. Are we good? Uh-uh. We're not good at all. This is not a good battle plan. Can we agree? They are going to fight 135,000 men with trumpet, torches, empty jars, and shouting. It does not make any sense. But here's the point. This strategy does not require any military skill whatsoever. Anyone can blow a trumpet, anyone can smash an empty jar, anyone can hold a torch, and anyone can shout. Because the point is trumpet, jar, tortures, and shouting are not the point. This is Gideon's strategy. But if Gideon's going to defeat the Midianites, it's going to be the hand of God that does the work. Not Gideon 
and the 300 men. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 19 to 23. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just sat the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hand. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands the torches, and in their right hand the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and, the all, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. Verse 22. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshutah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Mehola, Batabat. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh. And they pursue after Midian. Pay attention. When they blow the trumpet, when you hear that, it is not Israel who's on the move. Do you know who's on the move? God is on the move. It is God who set every man in the Midian's army against their comrade. All the 300 men have to do is pursue the Midianites who are running away from the battle scene. Now, do you think it's strange that God will use such unlikely methods? If we know the God of the Bible, it is not strange at all. Because my friend, that is what Christianity is all about. See, Christianity is not religion for the elites, for the best of the best, for the 300. No, 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 no. See, people often ridicule Christianity by saying, you know, Christianity is religion for the weak not for the strong. And I will say, you're absolutely right. I cannot agree more. Because Christianity is not for those who are strong, but for those who know that they are weak. And this is something that we need to be comfortable with because in the economy of God, weakness is strength. It is when we are weak that we are strong because it is our weakness that makes God's power perfect in our life. In other words, God does not want strong Christian. He wants weak Christian who know that their God is strong. Because then, no one can take credit but God. God chose Gideon not because he's strong. God chose Gideon because Gideon is weak. And that is why God makes the army as small as it is. And that is why the battle plan is as weird as it is. Because God is saying to them and us, I want you to know without shadow of doubt that I am the one who set you free. That I am the one to fight for you. That I am the one who does all the work. That I am the one that deserves all the glory. And you should worship no other God but me. So that when the 300 men return home, they cannot return home singing of what they have done. They can only sing of what God has done as they watch. And let's finish the story. Verse 24 to 25. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, 
come down against the Benianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Bethbarah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the water as far as Bethbarah and also the Jordan. And they captured two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zip. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zip they killed at the winepress of Zip. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zip to Gideon across the Jordan. So Gideon seek the help of the tribe of Ephraim, and they capture and kill two princes, prince sorry, of Midian, and they bring their heads to Gideon. The story is not finished, but today we'll finish there. But let me give you a word of warning. This is the best we see of Gideon. Starting next week, everything going to go downhill. Okay, next week's sermon is going to be really, really bad. And the week after that, even worse. Okay, it's just going to be really bad as in, literally bad, not bad as in good. Okay, it's just going to go downhill. Because we will see when Gideon knows that he's weak, that's when he's strong. But the moment he began to think that he's strong, that's the beginning of Gideon's downfall. But for today, we stop here. And this is where I want to draw your attention. I'm back to my seat. Throughout the book of Judges, we see these repeated patterns that God sent salvation, not through strength, but through weakness. See, Gideon is a weak man from a weak family in a weak tribe, and he must face the might of Midian with a weak army. Because why? Because it shows us that God does not save us through strength, but weakness. Because the story of God's salvation in the book of Judges is just a mirror of shadow of the ultimate story of salvation. You know what that is? The gospel. Because the gospel is the story of God saving us not through strength, but through weakness. In order to save us from our greatest enemy, sin. God did not send a king who conquered the world with superior army, who didn't. But God sent a king who humbled himself and laid down his life for us. Time and time again in Jesus' life, we are confronted with the weakness of Jesus. I mean, he's the one who created the universe. He has all power and authority, and yet he washed his disciples' feet. He did the job of the lowest of servants. And during his trial, you know what happened to him? He's mocked, he's spit upon, he's beaten, and he does not fight back. And he gets so weak to the point that he can't even carry the cross. Someone else has to help him. Why? Because that is who Jesus is. Jesus is a man who comes to us in weakness. And the ultimate weakness of all weakness is when Jesus was stripped naked and nailed to a cross. That is the picture of ultimate weakness. But through the weakness of the cross, here's what happened. The greatest victory happens for you and me. Because Jesus defeated the power of sin once and for all by dying on the cross. And on the third day, Jesus resurrected from death as ultimate sign of his victory. And the good news is that Jesus' victory can be our victory. All we have to do is admit that we are weak. Admit that we cannot save ourselves. Admit that we need a Savior. And here's the good news. Jesus is more than ready to save us. 
We cannot be saved if we think we're good or able. Because Jesus' saving power only works when we admit that there's no ounce of goodness in ourselves. And let me end the plane this way. And maybe, just maybe, just maybe, maybe that's why some of us today are in a position of weakness. Maybe the reason that God brings us to this position of weakness is because God wants to teach us the most important lesson. God wants to teach us to learn to depend on His strength. Because God wants to give us something that is far better than health, far better than wealth, far better than family, far better than anything that the world has to offer, and that is helpless dependence on God. But it's the thing. It is only when we know how weak we are that we are ready to experience God's costly grace for us. And if we understand this, here's what happened. Here's what's amazing when we understand God's grace. It frees us to boast about our weaknesses and make much of God. See, if we boast about our strength, look at me, I'm capable. People may look at us and think, you know what? I wish I was like that person, but I'm not. I can't do anything about it. But if we boast about our weakness, that makes people think, you know, that person is just as weak as me. But God's grace sustains him or her. And if God's grace can sustain that person, God's grace can sustain me as well. See, that's why Christian, in the word of uh, Charles Spurgeon, Christian are not people who boast about their strength. No, no, no. Christian are beggars telling a bunch of beggars where to find bread. Because Christian ultimately are people who boast in Christ alone. Can I have the Christian worship team back? As I close the sermon, I want to do something different today. I know usually, let's bow our head and pray. But I believe strongly in my heart today as I prepare the sermon that there are many of us in that position of weakness and you are not there by coincidence or accident. You are there by plan. Because what I believe what God is trying to teach us is that God's strength is made perfect not in our strength but in our weaknesses. And I do believe that God wants to flex His muscle to show you how strong and mighty He is in your moment of weakness. So as I close the sermon, I want to do something different, and that is, I want to give you space to admit and to confess that you are weak and you need God. I'm not saying every one of us are in that place, but I do know that there's some of us in this place that you are in a position that right now that you're just like, God, I'm so tired. God, I'm so weary. God, I don't know if I can survive a single day more. And you are on the verge of collapse and you are at the end of your strength and you are there, not by coincidence, because God wants to show His strength to you. So if that's you, with every eyes open, I want to give you the space to boast on your weaknesses so that God's strength made perfect in it.
So if that's you, just raise your hand in kind of you. Just really put your hand really high. That's me. Lord, I'm a place of weakness and I need you in kind of three. One, two, three. Just raise your hand really high. Now look around. Those of you who do not raise your hand, look around. I'm going to give you a homework right now. And that is, and where are we about to pray? Why don't you, if you have, you're sitting next to someone who raised their hand. Well, there's so many of them. Why don't you lay hand for one another? Pray the prayer of faith with, for one another as we about to ask for God's strength for one another. And if you see someone, if you do not raise your hand, if you see someone raise their hand, why don't you lay your hand on them? And why don't we pray together and ask for God's strength together? Let's do that. Okay, let's do that as a church. Let's learn to pray together as a church. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I have no idea what your people are experiencing right now. I have no idea what kind of mountains lies before them. I have no idea what kind of army are they facing right now. But I do know, I do know that with you, nothing is impossible. All you need is just 300 men who are willing to put their faith in you to overcome 135,000. And so today we come together to you as a church. We pray together for our brothers and sisters who are facing giants, who are facing that army that overwhelm us. And we right now, Lord, we want to confess that we are weak people. We want to confess that we cannot do this. We are weak and we need your strength. We need your grace, Heavenly Father. We need your hands of provision to work for us. Because we do not know how we can survive without you. So right now, Lord, in our position of weakness, we confess that we are weak. But we also confess by faith that we have a strong God. We have a mighty God. We have a powerful God whose grace will not fail us. So today we confess boldly, God, may your strength made perfect in our weaknesses. May our weaknesses lead us to lean more on you. And God, we speak by faith. Right now we trust in the coming days that we will see that your hand work in our life. That we will see your hand, your grace make the impossible possible. So I pray, Lord, for our church. I pray for many of my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself right now that we may experience your goodness, that we may experience your supernatural strength in our moment of weakness so that our mouth will cry out, this is not my victory. This is not because of my strength. This is God's victory by God's strength. And therefore, all glory, honour and praise belong to God alone. We may boast not in our strength, but we may we boast in Christ who is strong for us. And we ask this prayer in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.